Good morning. I'm Regina Hansen. I'm going to be reading God's Word to you. We are going to be reading Exodus 11 and 12. So buckle up. In the Pew Bible, it's page 53. I have my trusty water with me. Andrew said I'm allowed to have it because this is a long one. But it's an amazing, amazing story of God's faithfulness to his people. Okay, are we ready? Let's get into this. Exodus 11, the Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all the wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month will be for you the beginning of months. It shall be your first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of people According to what each shoke can eat, you shall make your count for that lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall not let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. 
for I shall pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are, and when I see that blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast of the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you will eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day, I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your house. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing unleavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select your lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of your house, the door of your house, until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lentils and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over that door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land the Lord will give you, as he's promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a household where someone was not dead. And he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks 
and your herds of you have said, and be gone and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses had told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So they let them have what they had asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of dough, which they'd brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time of the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of Israel, sorry, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching, kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout all the generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is a statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is brought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Obviously, we've been in the book of Exodus. From slavery to glory, and we're, we're there, we're at that part of the story now, aren't we, where they're going to exit their slavery. The Passover story, the, sto- the, the event, the event of Israel's history that God tells them to celebrate, to memorialize. We're, as a culture, as a people, we're coming up on a lot of um, holidays and celebrations, so we understand the concept a, a little bit right? Thanksgiving, we memorialize something that happened. Obviously, as Christians, Christmas, we memorialize. Really, literally, every Sunday in gathering, we are remembering and memorializing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Did you know that? That's what we're doing. Not just on Easter. If you, if you only come on Easter, you're missing out on 51 other memorial services to the Lord, aren't you? 
When we gather, we are celebrating, we are remembering, just like the Israelites memorialize, gather, celebrate the Passover, the defining moment of their salvation, and really of all of humanity's salvation because Jesus is from the family of Israel, isn't He? The salvation of Israel is the salvation of Jesus's family tree, and thus the salvation of you and of me. Even today, Jewish families celebrate Passover. Millions of Jewish homes in, in April will celebrate the feast of the Passover, won't they? A night of watching, a night of waiting for the Messiah to come. As Christians, we believe the Messiah has come and that everything in these two chapters actually points to Jesus Christ, the true Passover, who has come, the Messiah who has come. This story, maybe more than any other story in the Old Testament, illustrates the nature of God's salvation for us. So to understand this story is to understand God's salvation. To understand Passover is to understand how we are saved. So our title today is Celebrating God's Salvation. Celebrating God's Salvation. This morning, I'm going to give you one lesson, and then we're going to uh, take the time to look at this text together. Here's our lesson. By understanding the Passover, we can understand and celebrate our salvation in Christ. By understanding this ancient story, this, this very Jewish story, this Old Testament story, movies have been made about it, haven't they? And we can understand what it means to be saved in Jesus Christ. What it means to be saved in Jesus Christ. Because you see, what this story is going to show us and what we're going to talk about this morning is this very vital truth that there is in God's, in God's story, in God's narrative, in God's book, there is no such thing as self-salvation. Not a single person in this book saved themselves. The Israelites will not save themselves. They will need a Savior. And that's what we're going to see this morning. There's no earning, no achieving, no pedigree, no giant cosmic scale weighing good and evil. Nope. Everyone is in danger on Passover night. From the Egyptian to the Israelite, everyone's in danger. Everyone needs a Savior. Everyone needs the blood. So we're going to look at seven words from this story together and we're going to connect it to passages from Romans, the book, New Testament book of Romans, along the way. So we're going, to, we're going to go through seven words that I think draw out the, the most important points of this text. Obviously, we could do a hundred words from these two chapters. We just don't have time. So I chose seven different words, and we're going to make connections to our lives as we look at passages from Romans. Our first word, plague, plague. God fights for our holiness. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, 
yet one plague more. One more plague. One more plague. Why plagues? Why ten plagues? Why does it get dragged out? Why didn't God just jump to the chase and do this one first? Because God is showing Himself to humanity through the plagues. Could God have done this all a lot quicker? Yep. But in doing it slowly through ten plagues, He's revealing His nature to Egypt, He's revealing His nature to Israel, and through His Word, He's revealing His nature to us. We understand God through the ten plagues, and especially through this tenth plague. We need to know that God is unlike any other God. He is the I Am. He is the transcendent one. He is the holy one, the unique one. There is no other God like Him. The gods of Egypt could not stand up to Him, could they? It's all, it's, it's all, it's, it's God just blow after blow after blow. And if God, and if God relents, it's because He chose to, not because they got in a couple good licks along the way. God is proving that He alone should be worshipped. He alone is worthy. Romans one twenty five says this, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Pastor Mark did a great job last week of showing us that God's plagues were not just random attacks against nature, but they were attacks against the gods. Chapter, this, 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 what we just read said that. God is fighting the gods of Egypt. Why? Because they represent how mankind has elevated the creation above the Creator. Thankfully, none of us have that problem anymore, do we? (laughs) Yes, we do. Of course we do. This is a diagnosis of all humanity for all time, for all places, that we take what God has made and we elevate it above God. That's what we do. It's what we do. The Egyptians even took death and elevated it as a god. They were death-obsessed. You know that, mummies, pyramids. They had a whole entire culture rooted in how to die and how to take everything with you when you die. Why? Because they feared death. You see, here's something that we need to understand. When we fear something, we will worship it. When we, what we fear, we worship. If we are afraid that we won't have enough money for our future, what do we do? We start to worship money, don't we? And we start to make an idol of our career or our savings, our accounts. If you're a student and you, you fear that you won't be popular, what do you start to worship? The cool kids, right? You start to worship popularity, and you start to make an idol of how you look or what you sound like so that everybody will like you and think that you're popular, think that you're cool like them. We do this in all kinds of ways. What we fear 
becomes what we worship, and then we turn it into idols. And when we turn it into idols, suddenly the very thing we fear, we can now control. We're afraid of it. We elevate it. We control it. It doesn't work, does it? God is to be feared. God is to be worshipped. God is not to be controlled. And that's what the plagues tell us. Don't you dare think that you can control me. I am beyond you. I am, I am. I am Yahweh. What about you? What's your idol this morning? What are you afraid of this morning? What are you trying to control? What part of your life are you trying to control? Our second word, death. Look at verse 5, 11 verse 5. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Death. God's justice demands death for sinners. We get this right away in the Bible. Genesis 2. God puts a tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, and He says, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says, do not eat that tree. If you do, you will die. So right away, God says, there's a way to obey me. There's a way to disobey me. There's a way to trust me. There's a way to uh, not trust me. If you choose to rebel against me, if you choose to reject my life, you will die. And we know, we know the story. Adam and Eve choose that very tree, don't they? And that brings death into the world. Those who don't fear God are destroyed. Why? Because God hates sinners? No, God doesn't hate sinners. God hates sin. But here's the problem. There's sin inside of us sinners. So, any human being who cannot admit that they are a sinner and ask for the cleansing of that sin is now propagating that sin and likely into eternity unless God destroys it. But Brady, I, um, I'm not sure I'm a sinner. I mean, I'm not that bad. Okay, let me ask you a question. Just, I mean, this is just a bottom line question. Are you dying? If you're in this room right now and you are not actively dying, I want to meet you. <laughs> right? Right? Every one of us in this room is dying. You know what that proves? You're a sinner. You are guilty. You are guilty. Here's how Romans says it. Here's how Paul says it in Romans. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not for most have sinned, not for some have sinned, for, for um, there's some really bad sinners, and then there's some people that are kind of like, eh, they're all right. It doesn't say that. It says all have sinned. Are you an all? Okay. So am I. And then in Romans 6, he says this, the wage of sin is death. 
We know that. He's not, Paul's not making up something new. That's Genesis. Read Genesis 5. They died, and they died, and they died. Adam died. Seth died. Lamech died. Noah died. Methuselah died. We die. Why do we die? Because the wage of sin is death. You see, in this story, God is sending the destroyer. God is going to take the life of every firstborn son that doesn't have the blood. Please see what's happening in this story. God is protecting them from God. Do you see that? This, the, the Passover story is not a story of Israel being protected from Egypt. It is a story of Israel being protected from God. Look at the cross. What is the cross? The cross is God protecting you from God. That's what's happening. In God's righteousness and holiness and justice, He has to destroy sin, but that means destroying you. So what will God do? Will He just destroy all of humanity, or will He come up with a plan to save us from Himself? And that's what He does. How? How does He do that? Let's keep going. Firstborn. Back to verse 5. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt, God requires a representative sacrifice. God requires a representative sacrifice. Okay, put this, there's where we get a little deep. So put those thinking caps on, right? Why did God require the life of the firstborn sons? If you're a firstborn son in here this morning, raise your hand. Okay, you feel this, don't you? You feel this. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm the fourth-born son, so I'm, I'm, I'm golden. I got no worries up here, right? Why? Why is God requiring the life of the firstborn? Okay, uh, the very simple answer is it's recompense. Uh, back in chapter 4, God said, Israel is my firstborn son. If you do not let him go, I will kill your firstborn sons. He literally said that in chapter 4. So, the easy answer is Hey, Pharaoh, you killed my kids, now I'm going to kill yours. Eye for eye, life for life, right? But there's more. There's more to this. There's more to this. In the ancient world, the firstborn son, and even, even in our world, we, we can understand this a little bit, even in our world, the firstborn represents the entire family. The firstborn usually got a larger inheritance. The, the firstborn was like the spokesperson for the family. And so the firstborn is often, in pagan religions, the firstborn was often required by the gods in some form. If they were really evil, they would say, sacrifice them in the fires. Or they might say something like, make them into a priest. We saw this in Genesis chapter 22 when God looked at Abraham and said, uh, take Isaac up on the mountain and sacrifice him. That would not have shocked Abraham. He would have said, of course, that's what gods do. God's require firstborn sons. The problem was God had told, already told Abraham that Isaac was going to be a great nation. And so 
Abraham had to wrestle with that. Now here we are, God saying, I require your firstborn sons. Why? Because firstborn sons show us the concept, the theological concept of representation. You see, in the Bible, the Bible will go on to teach us, like in the book of Romans, that all of us are either a son of Adam or we are a son of God, a son of Christ in a sense. We are either in Adam or we are in Jesus. Romans 5.15, it's up here on the screen. For if many died through one man's, Adam's, trespass, Adam's sin, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. What's Paul doing? He's setting up the dichotomy. You're either under the trespass of Adam or you're under the free gift of grace through Jesus. Which are you this morning? Which are you? Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Can you answer that? Do you know the answer to that question for your own soul? Brady, I am 1,000% sure I am in Christ. Can you say that? Okay, well, how do, how do I, wow, how do I do that? How do I, okay, let's keep going. Lamb, chapter 12, verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb. According to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. One lamb per household. God will accept a substitute sacrifice. God requires the firstborn, but He'll accept a substitute. God requires the Son, but he'll, He's offering a way out. Okay? All you firstborn sons say, Whew. we are dodging a bullet, a big bullet. The lamb is the substitute here. The lamb will shed its blood. The lamb will give its life instead. This is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. A substitute atones or covers our sins. The substitute lamb covers our sins for us. Paul teaches this doctrine clearly in the book of Romans. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For us. In our place. Jesus didn't teach us how to die. He died for us. He did it in our stead. And in doing that, He covers or 
we'll see in a minute, He propitiates, He takes away our sin. Again, let me repeat, we can never save ourselves. Listen, the world is going to tell you that salvation lies within you. Follow your heart, follow your dreams. Self-actualization, self-determination. The world is going to tell us that as a human species, we can save ourselves. We can figure out literally how to solve all of our own problems through better government, through better education, through better social programs, by making sure that we don't um, uh, create so much climate change and climate disaster. If we do all of these things, we can save ourselves. But look, here's what we know. Here's what all of us know as individuals and as a species. We need a Savior. We cannot save ourselves. You know this. You know this as an individual. There's, there's little babies in this room. Did that baby feed itself, raise itself, clothe itself, nurture itself? What happens to a baby that you just set, set aside and walk away from and nobody ever interacts with that baby ever again? What happens to that baby? It dies. And see, that's the story of your life. You've been being saved from something outside of you, acting upon you, your whole life. None of you have gotten, gotten yourself to where you are. How dare you think that? That's true in your life, and that's true in your salvation. We all need a force from outside of us to act upon us and to rescue us and save us. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the substitute for the world. The one for whom there would be no substitute on that day. There was no Lamb for Jesus. He went to the cross he died as the son of Adam so that you might be the son of God, that you might be a son of God, I should say, so that you might be a child of the king. Do you believe that? Have you accepted Jesus as your lamb, as your substitute? Blood. Look at verse 7, 12 verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house where they eat. God's wrath is satisfied by the blood of the substitute sacrifice. God's economy is a blood economy. At the Passover, there was only one thing that God was looking for the blood. There, there, there's no other option. You don't get to write a little note and put it on the door for, for God. Here's all the good things I did. Here's why I don't deserve to die. The blood. The blood, the blood, the blood. The book of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. We are reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
God's economy is a blood economy. Here's how Paul says it in Romans. God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Just like that lamb's blood had to be painted onto the doorposts, Christ's blood had to be shed. Paul uses this fancy word, propitiation. God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. That word propitiation means a satisfaction, the satisfaction of God's holy and settled wrath against sin. Let me say it again. Propitiation, the satisfaction of God's holy and settled wrath against sin. So wait, are you saying that our God is just this bloodthirsty tyrant, and if we we don't throw blood at Him, He's not going to forgive us? No, that's not what I'm saying. He's different from the Egyptian gods, isn't He? He's different from the Mayan gods and the Aztec gods, isn't He? He's different from the Roman gods and the Greek gods, isn't He? Here's how He's different. Let me give you two ways that God's propitiation is different from propitiation in every other, in every other um, deity, for every other deity, for every other pagan system. Here's, here's how. Number one, most important, it is God propitiating God, not you. Let me say it again. You do not propitiate or satisfy the wrath of God. In every other religion, people are satisfying or appeasing their God through their sacrifices, through, through their prayers, through their alms, through their literal, literal things that they're bringing in, into the altar, um, setting up a shrine in their closet and, and bringing fruits and vegetables. In every other religion, the person satisfies the God, but in our religion, in our faith, God satisfies God. Okay? God propitiates God. Number two, the propitiation sacrifice, therefore, the cross, Christ on the cross, the propitiating sacrifice is not a gift from us to God. It is a gift from God to us. Do you see that? We do not give gifts to God. Romans 11. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Put money in the offering plate. It is a gift to God to appease God. No. The money you put in the offering plate, guess what? It's already God's. We don't give to God because God needs it. Do you understand that? God's not up in heaven like, man, this inflation thing is killing me. You should see my gas prices. (laughs) I'm dying up here. Y'all better start giving. 
That is not what's going down. God, it's, it's, it's already a for him, from him, through him, to him, by him. It's his. To him be glory forever. Amen. We do not give our lives to God in order to pay back the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is not the gospel. That's a pagan religion. We receive the life of Christ. He's the giver. We're the receiver. Okay, why blood? Why blood? Because blood represents life and it represents covering. It represents life and it represents covering. When God sees the blood, <clears throat> chapter 12, verse 23, when I see the blood, I won't enter your house. When God sees the blood, He sees the life of the Lamb and He sees it covering the house. When Jesus died, His blood covers us. The blood, therefore, is for God. When I see the blood, notice it does now, yes, is painting the blood an act of faith? Yes, but God does not say to them, when I see your faith, I will move on. He says, when I see the blood, I will move on. Now, you got to know, there were Israelites that are painting that blood and thinking, man, I hope this works. <laughs> right? Junior, Junior's out there, Dad, Dad, more blood. <laughs> right? I do not want to die tonight. <laughs> Get it right, Dad. Get, right? They had faith <laughs> of a mustard seed. God saw the blood. God saw the blood. You with me? He didn't see their pedigree. He didn't see that they were Hebrews. He didn't see their religion. He doesn't see your background. He doesn't see your suffering. He sees the blood. That's what saves you, the blood. Are you covered by the blood? What covers your guilt before God this morning? What do you use day by day by day by day to cover your guilt and your shame? What fig leaves are you sewing together so that you're not naked before God? What are you doing? What are you doing to appease God? Is it your good behavior? Is that why you come to church? Is that why you put money in the offering? Is that why you help people to keep God off your back, to make sure God's happy with you? Or is it the blood? Are you reconciled by the blood? Passover. <clears throat> Oops, where did I go? Passover. I don't see it in my notes. It, pretend it's there. <laughs> Passover. Look at verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, and your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. The Lord's Passover. Because of the blood, God can pass over our sin. That's what the slide should say that I can't find. 
Because of the blood, God can pass over our sin. Romans 3.25 says this, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. See, when they painted that blood, it allowed there to be this exchange. This, this is what happened in the, in the record book. When God, when God, like, try to imagine it, when God literally looks at that house and sees that blood, he is looking at their record and he's expunging it. He's saying, not guilty, free and clear, no debt, no sin debt, and he's moving on to the next house. That is what happens for us through Christ. All sins passed over. And listen, for us in Christ, it's even better. It's not even that sins are passed over. They are propitiated. They are, the, the debt is satisfied. It's never coming back. Listen, Christian, do you know that not a single sin, if you are in Christ, if you are covered by the blood, if, that, if, that, if the cross of Christ's blood covers you, if you are covered by the blood, Christian, do you understand that not a single sin is being counted against you today, tomorrow, forever? Do you believe that? Brady, you don't know what I've done. You, you do not know. You do not know my past. You don't know my record. Okay. Okay. So is the life of Christ more powerful than your life or not? Is his death satisfying to God or not? Is it or not? Irregardless of what you've done, is it or not? Christ died for your sins. He took away your sins as far as east is from west, buried in the deepest sea. They are counted against you no more. Praise God. You are not guilty, Christian. You are objectively not guilty and subjectively not guilty. You don't have to feel guilty. Is Satan still accusing you? Does Satan still bring up your past? Does Satan still bring up last night? Does he still bring up the habits, the bad habits and thoughts? Is Satan standing in accusation against you? Let me ask you, how can Satan accuse you of something that the Lord Jesus has passed over? Where are you trying to find your cleansing this morning? If it's, if it's anything other than the blood, Christian, listen to me. If it's anything other than the blood, you are on the wrong track. Your rededications to Christ, your recommitments to Christ, your walk in the aisle over and over, your, your prayers, your, oh, if you think your prayers are cleansing you, then you, you do not understand the blood. If you think because you threw a stick in the fire in the eighth grade at camp, that's not the blood. 
It is only the blood of Christ that takes away your sin. And is Jesus still shedding his blood? No, (laughs) no. He's not still shedding his blood. He shed his blood once for all time. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Memorial, our last one, memorial. 12.14. Everybody look at 12.14. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast for the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. We must never forget and forever celebrate our salvation in Christ. We must never forget, forever celebrate our salvation in Christ. Like we said, Passover is the defining event of Jewish history. It's the defining event of their faith. God wanted it remembered. He wanted it celebrated even before it happened. Do you realize even before it happened, God's outlining what they're going to do. This will be a holiday for you. This will be a feast, a celebration for you forever, forever. And when your kids ask about it, you'll explain it to them. That's why he wanted them to do it so that generation after generation after generation would understand what God did for them on that day. In a minute, we're going to keep this feast, but in a different way. You see, Jesus, when Jesus was alive, he kept the Passover, didn't he? Because he kept all the law. Jesus went to Passover every year for 30-something years. He ate the unleavened bread. He ate the bitter herbs. He ate the roasted lamb. He drank the four cups shared the four cups of wine, but on one Passover, at one Passover, celebrated not, not with his mom and not with his brothers and sisters, but with his disciples. They gathered in a room, and Jesus took that unleavened bread, and he broke it. And then he said something that they had never heard before. They'd, they'd done it every year too. Peter, James, John, Thaddeus, Nathaniel, Philip. They've, all, they've, they've heard the speech their whole lives. But on that day, on that day, it's going to be different. Jesus tore that bread and he said these words. This is my body broken for you. And he lifted up the cup, the third cup, the cup of affliction. And he said something they had never heard before. He said, this cup is my blood shed for you. He took what God ordained 1,500 years earlier, and Jesus, because he is God, said, This is no longer about getting out of Egypt. This is about getting out of sin 
once for all. You are now no longer going to be enslaved to sin because this is my body and this is my blood broken for you and shed for you. This do in remembrance of me. Church, let's all take out the elements. Listen, if you're sitting here this morning and you say, I, I, Brady, I know, I know that I'm still trying to figure out my own way to righteousness. I know that I'm still trying to appease God with my sacrifices instead of Jesus' sacrifice. I know that I pretty much see myself as the Lord of my own life. I know that I have sinned against a righteous and holy God and that my sin is cosmic treason, that my sin is a rebellion against Him. Brady, I know that. Okay, listen, if that's you, don't partake of the symbol, partake of the real thing, Jesus Christ. There's a prayer up here on the screen. The prayer doesn't save you. What saves you? The blood. (laughs) Faith in the blood. Faith in the blood. But the prayer can be an expression of that faith, can it? Lord Jesus, I admit I'm broken. I'm sinful, more sinful than I ever imagined. But I believe that through you, I am more loved and accepted than I could ever hope. I thank you for praying, paying my sin debt, bearing my punishment, and offering forgiveness. I turn from my sin and receive you by faith as Savior. You can pray that prayer or a similar prayer this morning. You can, by faith, turn from your self-salvation and receive the salvation of Christ. Receive the substitutionary blood of the Lamb. Will you do it? Will you do it? But listen, this ceremony, this memorial that we're about to do, Christian, it's primarily for you. This is for you to remember, to remember and to never forget, never forget what the Lord has done. As the musicians play, as we contemplate, think about these words from Exodus. The Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. Christian, does that describe your life? Does that describe the, the, the doorpost of your heart? That I am trusting in the blood of Christ alone to save me. If it does, meditate on these things while the musicians play.